Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Paramount Podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. Um, I'm really glad you're here. Um, Delighted to have another conversation today uh, with a great guest, uh, somebody I've I've admired for a very long time, uh, and uh, like a lot of guests I have on this show, but um, this one feels a bit special. So uh, welcome to the show, Amanda Held Opelt. I got that right. <laughs> yeah, thanks, James. It's really, it's really good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm really, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. It's going to be, um, it's going to be fantastic. So, um, so yeah, um, and of course, um, some people might know you as um, the sister of Rachel Held Evans, um, yeah. as well, the late Rachel Held Evans, um, who passed away um last year uh and was it last year um or was it two years ago i can't remember you know I can't, I, can't it's funny, two it? years, but it's funny how grief years are like dog years or, or something like that like there's some kind of elasticity to it so i know exactly what you mean it's hard to keep track of uh but it, it'll be two years on may 4th uh that she yeah. passed away yeah wow See, yeah hard to believe it's been that long and yeah. it also feels like it's been a thousand years ago, you know? Yeah, I know. Yeah. And, and time has been so funny with the pandemic as well. It's absolutely, it's distorted everything, you know, um, you know, we're not, I can't even keep track of, you know, I mean, even a year ago, feels like two, three years ago, you know, it's, yeah, it, it's a strange, it's like we've been living in a weird black hole or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, it's 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 strange. Um, so we're going to talk about grief today because um, we both have shared ex- both have experience of, of grief and losing a family member. Um, and I know you've got a really powerful story and lots of lessons. And I think going through this last twelve months has been a collective grief experience. And mm. I think if we can pass on any lessons from our experiences that'll be I think people might appreciate that and, and it's always good to tell our stories I think yeah and I, um, I really appreciate your work and all you've done to just kind of um normalize talking about grief and trauma that's important work and I, I appreciate what you've done thank you that's really kind especially from you because you know because somebody who has experienced a lot of grief and you know um has held, had to deal with a lot of grief in the last couple of years to to to, to say that is uh, that means a lot so thank you um so tell us tell us the story i guess of 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 your your experience of of grief and how it happened for you yeah you know i if if Four years ago, you had told me that I would be on a podcast talking about grief. I would have thought that's absurd because um, I had led such a, I don't want to say sheltered, but um, up until fairly recently had been rather protected from grief in some ways, you know, had lost grandparents, but grandparents that were far away and at advanced age to the point that it was very expected and 
had just had, and you'll you'll know this if any of you listening have read my sister's books, you know that we had a really beautiful childhood and um, great parents and experienced relatively little suffering. But I guess, you know, my first encounters with grief um, were really secondary, you know, I kind of think of secondary grief or secondary trauma, because I've always, um, in my career, I've always done social work, international aid, you know, relief work, and so kind of had this exposure to other people's pain in pretty significant doses, you know, Um, and, uh, you know, had spent quite a bit of time and, um, you know, what they call the slums of India, had done a lot of um, inner city work in the U.S., hearing people's stories of trauma, um, absorbing those stories. And um, I kind of think, of myself as having lived in the suburbs of other people's sadness in some ways, you know, um, having visibility on it, but not really experiencing it myself personally. Um, I'm thankful for those experiences because in, in many ways it, it, it prepared me for my own trauma, my own grief. But over the last um, three or four years, just had kind of a series of pretty difficult personal events that happened. I I lost my grandmother, who was probably a grandmother I was closest to. She lived near me um, while I was on a, I was in East Africa at the time and couldn't make it home for her funeral. And that was hard. You know, I didn't have the closure kind of that I needed. Um, had a, an aunt that I was close to that passed away very suddenly. Um, and then, um, you know, had some difficult experiences overseas, um, particularly in a war zone setting in Iraq. I was a staff chaplain at a hospital there and just saw, you know, I had a pretty traumatic experience just witnessing kind of the impact of, of warfare there. Um, and shortly after that, had um, had a miscarriage after um, a couple years of really wanting to have a baby. And that was when I first was like, okay. Um, life uh, doesn't always go how you think it's going to go. Um, just because you've kind of had this easy experience thus far doesn't mean it's going to continue that way forever. Um, really so thankful to have had a, a healthy baby girl, um, you know, the year after my miscarriage, um, it, when she was about eight months old is when my sister became sick. Um, and actually today is kind of the, is actually the anniversary of the day that we realized that the flu that we all thought she had was actually something had, um, you know, morphed into something much more serious. Um, and this is, this is kind of the beginning of what I say was, you know, April 15th was the beginning of what was kind of a three week, four week period of just torture and mm. her illness and um, her getting worse and worse and realizing there wasn't a solution that she wasn't going to get better and then eventually passing away. Um, so, so my, yeah, my sister who had been totally healthy, um, just very suddenly passed away when her children were age three and 11 months old. And mm. so just kind of the cascading, series of griefs that follow that. Um, she and I were, and she was my only sibling. Um, 
I don't know whether or not to think of myself as an only child now. Um, but that's a new experience for me as well. Um, just witnessing, you know, I think one thing no one ever tells you or warns you about grief is not only are you going to be in the worst pain of your life, but you're going to see the people you love the most be in the worst pain of their life. That in and of itself is hard enough. So watching my parents, watching my brother-in-law, watching my niece and nephew walk through this, it's, um, it was, it's a catastrophic loss. There's no other way to say it. And really, my world came crashing down. It, it was a, it was a before and after experience. I think many people in their life have those experiences where it's like they remember a time before and they remember a time after, but everything changed in that moment. Um. And and then, you know, sadly, in the year after her death, I had uh, two more miscarriages. Um, and at that point, we were my husband and I were just like, you know, <laughs> you just start to get used to sorrow. So it was just like, oh, this is familiar. Like, we've done this before. You hate to become good at grieving, but it was almost like we had to develop this kind of skill set to metabolize these um just um painful experiences that we are having um you know happily i'm sitting here and i can in the other room i can hear my newborn um cooing softly so we we've we're really grateful that we've yeah we've had another healthy pregnancy and a healthy birth and a healthy baby but it's been a, it's been a hard year of you know griefs both enormous and small, um, that we've just had to kind of weather and, and, you know, nothing really prepares you for it. So, um, that's been the last four years for me, for us, for my family. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's been tough. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Um, so much grief. Uh, there's not really much to say when that happens. It's it's just I I said that I resonate with a, with some of what you talk about because um, I remember you know I'm losing my mum and um, my dad on the day and even though they weren't married anymore he was they were still they 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 were they had been married for 25 years yeah um, and he broke down before I did um, and you know seeing him and my sister all kind of in pieces it was yeah it was horrible yeah it's yeah it's yeah there's not many many words um, it's yeah you just have to sit in it and feel it and and allow it to, to be what it is um, yeah you know, you shared something, James, when you were sharing your story um, in, you know, a previous podcast about how you felt like you had to kind of be the strong one and all of that. Um, and I, I really resonated with that because, you know, I, I think sometimes depending on who you've lost, you can you can kind of. Uh, how do I put this? There's a temptation to say, OK, maybe my loss isn't the most significant or my, you know, I, I, maybe I'm not quite at the epicenter, so I need to be the one that kind of 
gets everything, uh, sorts everything out, um, helps everyone else, is strong for everyone else because they might be hurting worse than I am. And you kind of, um, you, you, you kind of table your own grief, put it on the back burner for now so that you can tend to the needs of everyone else. Um, and, and you, again, you maybe justify that by saying, well, you know, I didn't lose my spouse. She, you know, she was my, my sister. And, and, and I've found that that maybe was some kind of a defense mechanism for me to not really deal with my grief is to say, well, it's, it, it might be slightly worse for my parents, it might be slightly you know, worse for my brother-in-law. So I need to, I'm going to be okay. I'll deal with my grief later. Let me just show up for them and be there for them and take care of everything that needs to be done. And so I'm finding that I'm in many ways at like ground zero of my own grief just now, because I've kind of ignored my own pain um, for maybe for two years in a lot of ways. And I'd like to say that's because I'm this very noble person that just wanted to care for everyone else. But I think in some ways it was kind of a way of protecting myself from the reality and in some ways ignoring my own pain or, um, I mean, you can't ignore it entirely, but just like not confronting it fully. So I don't know. I'd be curious to hear you talk a little bit more about that for you. Like, what is it? Yeah. What is it in people like you and me that that does that? Why do we feel like we have to be the ones? <laughs> show yeah, up? I, think, I think for me, it's because I was the oldest as well. Yeah. And, uh, and I'd taken on this role. People who listen to my story will know, will know a bit about this because I took on this role of when my mother was ill the first time, I think on a subconscious level, not on a conscious level, but of, Oh, it's my job to take care of everybody else. It's my job to save everybody else. Um, I don't matter as much. What happens to me doesn't matter as much. Right. It's my job to look after everybody else and make sure everyone else is okay. There's uh, some theology um, there too, right? There's some bad theology, I think, driving some. Oh, yeah. That, that, that's bad theology. <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And that's basically what happened when I, and I'd kind of, it's like, psychologically been preparing myself for her to die because i knew she had asthma i knew that maybe one day that it would kill her and stuff and also i think there was a part of me that was and i it's i only realized this much later on that i was expecting the worst to happen mm. and so when the worst did happen i was actually quite calm yeah really the day that she died i was really calm um i was i didn't express any emotion right because um, I was burying it all and trying to be strong for my dad. And like I said, my dad cried, you know, and I gave him, I had to be strong for him. Right. Um, um, and uh, yeah. And I think I mentioned this in, in the podcast. I don't know. I can't remember, but, but the, the time I, the first time I cried was um, we were preparing the funeral and the music and the music always makes me cry. Like yeah. it just undoes me completely, and we we played one of the songs, and uh, uh, and I just went, I just went. It was just, it was just, uh, just like that. I just, yeah, couldn't hold it in anymore, and 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 then I apologised. Wow. <laughs> I said, well, "I'm sorry, I'm crying," and my sister was like, "No, it's okay. This is good. You're allowed to cry. <laughs> you know, it's it's a good thing. This is what you needed to do." <laughs> You don't have to be strong for us, you know. Um, 
and that was that was a big moment. Yeah, that was important because, um, yeah, because being strong basically just built up this whole wedge of grief, and um, grief. There's this there's this thing that happens when you grieve that it, there's this kind of anger, and it's not really anger, but it looks like anger. Mm. But it's just this kind of desire to just scream to the heavens, like, um, and just and it's just raw grief, um, and you know, anger is part of grief. But I think there's just this energy inside of you when you when when you lose someone that you have to get it out of you. And uh, I think the more you bottle it up, the stronger it gets, the more raw it gets. Uh, and it did, and that 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 I had I had lots of problems with 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 anger for a long time after my mother died because I because I spent so much time bottling it all in, and not just after she died, but before that. As yeah, well. yeah. Well, and I I also think that like for me, it certainly is a little bit. There's a there's a pride element to it too because I mean, where rarely in society are we lauded or praised for breaking down and being blubbering with emotion you know what I mean like it's usually the people that are it's like wow you're being so strong I'm so proud of you or you know wow you're you're really holding up so well you know that's what we're kind society kind of praises you for or congratulates you for you know, if you can make it through the eulogy without completely breaking down if you can make the funeral arrangements and really show up it's like wow you're, you're, you're really, um, rising to the occasion. Right. And it, it may be in my pride, it was important for me to rise to the occasion in some way. And I felt like if I lost it emotionally, that I would have failed at that in some way, but really I failed myself, um, by not, um, allowing myself to have those moments. And, and, and again, I know some, at the end of the day, somebody's got to make funeral arrangements. Somebody has to help to take care of, of, of the needs that arise in the aftermath of death. But I wouldn't even allow myself those moments. Um, and I needed, I really needed to, and I'm learning to now as the year as you know, the years go by. I mean, we're all novices, I think at grief when it, when it happens and, and, and we have to learn how to manage it, how to carry it. I'm learning how to do that. And part of that is, allowing, allowing myself to have those outbursts of anger, of frustration, of despair when they come. Yeah, that's right. It's, um, it's, yeah, we have to allow ourselves to do that. We have to, um, we have to give ourselves permission to grieve as, uh, somebody, a guest I once said on this show, um, told me, Give ourselves permission to grieve. Mm-hmm. It's okay. It's okay to grieve. It's right. okay to express grief. It's okay to feel it. It's okay. It's human. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and it, what you just you said something a minute ago that is kind of speaking to me. You just talked about how you have these moments where you just want to shout to the heavens, right? So, I, after my sister died, I I started. I became strangely obsessed with like historic grief rituals. Um, so hang with me on this, but I, I started kind of looking at like what historically have people d- 
done to help them process their grief? Because I really felt a lack of ritual in my life. You know, um, I, I, I just, besides the funeral, there were very few ritualistic practices that I was able to kind of incorporate in my process of grief when my sister died. Certainly with miscarriage, I mean, you don't even have a funeral when there's a miscarriage. And so I, I was just kind of, you know, so, so many of the rituals of the past, like washing or dressing the body, for example, is now done in these kind of anesthetized settings of hospitals. Like it, it's a very sterile process now. We We leave it to the doctors, we leave it to the morticians and we're kind of removed from kind of the physicality of loss and, and death. So I just became kind of interested in how people have processed death in the past. Cause I feel like maybe our, our, our ancestors were better at this than we are. Um, and what, one of the rituals I found really interesting is, um, Irish keening. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but it's, Back in the olden days of Ireland, they would have these women that would come to the home of a person who had died and they would do something. It was called keening. And essentially what it was, was this wailing. I mean, they were whalers is what they were. And and so that they would gather for the wake and the whole family, whole community would come. And these women would just kind of erupt in this song that would become a wail. And sometimes there were words to the songs, but mostly it was just screaming, crying, and they would lead the whole community in crying and wailing. Um, interest, it's interesting that the, the lead keeners or the, the women that would lead the keens were often um, midwives as well. So they kind of were these women that escorted people into life and they escorted them out of life, you know, they're there at the beginning and at the end and these kind of liminal spaces. But I, I was just, you know, as you kind of, as I studied this, I just found it to be really interesting because it's like they recognize that people who are in grief need an outlet to literally scream, to, to literally just ex explode and lose all decorum and all, you know, um, sense of having it together and just really let loose and break down and to eat, to do that in a communal space um, with no judgment and, and no one kind of grading you on your performance of grief, just allowing you to be devastated and to vocalize that physically. Um, the practice has died out in the last hundred years and, um, there are lots of reasons why people think that's happened. I won't go into it, but it, anyway, it kind of just started me on this journey of investigating grief rituals from history, things, you know, just kind of practices that allowed people to process their grief. And that was one that stuck out to me. And yeah, just when you mentioned feeling a need to scream to the heavens, it's like, well, <laughs> some people have recognized that we needed to do that and created venues and rituals for that, but we just, we haven't in our culture. We, we don't do that in our culture now. No. And uh, it's, we've created a system, a culture that doesn't do that well, that doesn't grieve well, that wants to avoid grief, that wants to hide grief in certainty. 
um, that um, that doesn't understand doesn't understand grief really. It doesn't you know, that or how to deal with death and loss and suffering. Um, it's I think I my personal view is that that is one of the that's the root of a lot of the problems in in the Western world right now yeah. is that we are unable to deal with grief and suffering and do it in a healthy way. Um, yeah, just I mean, just that thing of like at the funeral where you, where you get we get praised for not crying when yeah. you're speaking, and it should and it, and it should be the complete opposite. You know, it should be like what's wrong with you if you're not crying? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I would have far more respect for somebody who is, who is crying when they're giving a eulogy than somebody who is just a relative that is just holding it together. Somebody who's just holding it together. I would, I want to go to them and just say, look, it's okay to cry. You can cry. Yeah. yeah. Don't hold it all in. This is not going to be healthy for you in the end. Yeah. Um, because um, you're not meant to be in a, you're not meant to be all together when you've just lost somebody you love. You know, you're not meant to have it all together. You're not meant to have it all sorted out. You're not meant to be in a good place. You're meant to be a mess, kind of. Um, well, you are a mess, but you just you, you can either acknowledge it or you can pretend that that you're not. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you're right. Um, I love that. I, I love the whole idea of that of really just leaning into to grief and having healthy rituals around grief. I think that's that's something that, you, like you say, we're we're missing a lot in in the world today. Yeah, yeah. It feels like these rituals they kind of invite they invite your body to participate in what your heart is feeling. You know, um, there's a kind of there's this physicality to it that's really interesting to me. Whether that's um, the lighting of candles, like you see in some Jewish traditions, washing the body, dressing the body, um, mm. things that people used to do to d- just confront the physicality of their experience. You know, um, it, it, it's like, the, I mean, there's, you, we have a lot of pomp and circumstance and ritual around weddings still, you know what I mean? You've got, at least in America, we have, you know, the bridal shower and you have the rehearsal dinner and you have the dress fittings and you have the buying the rings and the parties and then the and then the wedding itself and all these kind of rituals that might feel silly and expensive. But I I don't know. I think it's kind of important. It, it, it's a it's a mark of a significant life change. But with grief, it feels like there's a there's a funeral and that's it. And then it's it's very quickly over and you're expected to kind of move on rather quickly. Um, and I, yeah, I think we would do well to examine what rituals we can bring into that process so that our bodies catch up with our hearts in noting that we have gone through a significant change, that there is, there's been a catastrophic event in real life, real time your life will never be the same and you have to mark that somehow, you know, um, even if that means, I, I mean, walking through a ritual, like ritual forces you to confront the pain and that's hard. Um, 
most of my rituals were numbing rituals <laughs> that kind of occurred after Rachel died, you know, it was like Netflix binging or scrolling through Twitter or just ignoring the pain. Those were the rituals I was walking through rather than rituals that forced me to confront her death. And, you know, there is, I think there can sometimes be something as there is healthy distraction sometimes to kind of, you know, give yourself a break from the pain. I I understand that, but it's Mm. a balance. Um, yeah, so I, I'm just I'm just interested in how to do that better and trying to create those rituals even for myself so that next time I walk through grief, because I know there will be a next time, everyone I love will die someday, you know. Um, that's the inevitability of being human. So how am I preparing myself t- to be present in that, you know? Because that, that's how it feels. That's an important way that we honor the dead, but not only honor the, the dead, but like you honor yourself too. you know, a ritual, a grief ritual allows you to honor your own grief. And in many ways, I feel like I have not honored my own grief very well. Um, and I'd like to learn to do that better. Yeah. yeah. Honoring our grief is really, really important. It's when, and I've learned this through experience, when we start to do that and we start to name it and we start to feel it and we start to process it, that it has the power to transform us. Um, Grief has great power. Um, And either that power will control us or... Or it can transform us in a in a really positive way, um, and it's up to us. It's up to us whether we choose to to face it and we choose to go into those rituals, which will help us face it. Uh, and that can include therapy. <laughs> yeah, um, therapy yeah. is a ritual in a sense. You know, um, um, that that's really important. <laughs> um, yeah, a hundred percent can confirm on that <laughs> and is part of my, my life now. Um, but you know, I, and I, there's, there's that, um, Khalil Gibran, um, poem that I love that just talks about, I mean, the imagery is that grief kind of carves this Canyon, right? I think something like the deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more, um, space or the, the more joy it can contain, I think is what he says. Is that like, I've heard people compare it to like a balloon expanding. It's like grief expands this balloon in your heart that also allows you to hold more joy and hold more awe and wonder in life. Um, It creates a capacity for, for delighting in life, you know, like I've, I've never known I delighted in my daughter so much more after I lost my sister. And, and I also feared for her life more after I lost my sister. Cause you know that you, you learn the precarity of life when someone you really love dies, someone you thought you'd never lose passes away. Um, but yeah, so it, it's both, it's both 
good and bad. It's, it's again, creating that capacity for joy and delight and wonder and awe, but also creates a capacity for fear and uncertainty and um, sorrow. Um, but, but at the same time, I know what you mean. I feel like I'm in many ways a more whole person after, you know, I, I don't want to say that grief made me a whole person, but maybe I'm just, um, I have a greater capacity for being human in some way. Yeah. I definitely get that. Um, yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned that valley that opens up like, cause I remember you know, when I, I told my story that I said this, that I got this picture when I was about to go down and deal with this stuff finally, properly, of this valley ahead of me. Um, and it was dark. It was lots of dark clouds, and I couldn't see what it looked like or where it was going. And I was at the top, and I could see down into this big, deep valley. I knew I had to go there. Uh, I knew it'd be painful, but I knew I had to go there. So that that's interesting that you use that that metaphor because it it feels true. Um, and you're right; it does create more uncertainty in your life. Um, yeah, I'm kind of living in uncertainty now. I I don't want to go back into certainty anymore. Most of all, like uncertainty yeah. feels a lot more free. Um, you know, there's downsides to it, but. And there's a lot of upsides. Um, and I definitely appreciate what you mean about the more wonder, more joy, deeper joy. Um, yeah, because you know that that life can be so fleeting and you want to be fully present in every moment and not waste any moment. Um, it makes you almost fully more fully alive in a way. When you deal when you deal with grief well, um, any kind of grief in a way. I mean, not uh, obviously losing somebody is the the most painful, difficult type of grief that people can experience. Um, but any kind of loss, you know, whether you lose a job that you that you loved, or you a relationship ends, or even when a child moves away from home, or a child starts school for the first time, they're all elements of loss in all of that, and um, or, or like the last 12 months when all of our lives have changed completely. Um, right, to... absolutely. I mean, it's it's such an interesting time that we're going through to have this like collective global grief, you know, and that's why I think the conversations you're having, and I, this is why I so appreciate you, but it, it's just, it's more important than ever. Like, the, like the, this is a, a competency that we all have got to develop globally if we're going to get through the aftermath of what we've all been through with the pandemic, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think we have to learn how to grieve well. Um, my hope is that people will come out of this period and actually start to process their grief and name it and feel it and deal with it. Um, on the other hand, my fear is that some people will just want to, will just retreat into certainty and hide from their grief because they don't want to deal with it because they just want to go back to normal. When the reality is we're not going to go back to normal, even if we think we are, even if we think we are, um, because the world has changed. Um, And uh, yeah, so you're right. (laughs) What, I mean, what, what are the, what are the rituals that you've found that have 
that have helped you, whether it's little things or, or, or bigger things? Yeah, I mean, just I think some some things that have helped me. I mean, I know this is very cliche, but just like leaning on community lean. You know, one thing that I this is interesting. I think people are very concerned about saying the wrong thing when when you're in the aftermath of grief. Like they, they don't you're because people have done such a poor job in the past of um, with their words. Um you know, giving advice like, well, you know, heaven gained an angel and everything happens for a reason and all these silly, mm. pithy things mm. that people say after grief. I think we've all kind of, we're beginning to acknowledge that that's problematic. You know what I mean? You can't say those things. But in some ways, I feel like that has um, led people to just remain silent. Um, and and I did, I found that people avoided me in some ways because they, they didn't want to say the wrong thing. And I appreciate that, but I would much rather have your imperfect presence and your imperfect words than your silence and your absence, you know? Um, and one thing I found is there were a couple of kind of brave people that had walked through grief before that were wise enough to give me advice. And, and I was, I was like hungry for a grief mentor. Like when, when Rachel died, I was like, I, somebody, somebody give me some advice, you know? And I, and, and again, I appreciate people being cautious about that and, and, and appreciate that they didn't want to say the wrong thing. But, but, but again, it was hard to find people that were willing to give advice because they were so they were so afraid of doing that. And so I think just seeking out people that have experienced loss and um, asking for their for their advice, for their wisdom um, has been really helpful for me. Um, so, yeah, finding grief mentors <laughs> has helped. Um, I think, um, other things that have helped me have just been, have been art and poetry and music and song, you know, the, the poetry of Jan Richardson and Mary Oliver and, and people like that who have written a lot about grief, um, has, has helped me. And that became kind of a ritualistic practice for me of just saying, you know, I'm going to give myself every, every day or three or four times a week, I'm going to give myself 20 minutes to read a poem, to pray, to reflect on my grief and lament. And it, I had to be pretty rigid about it, but that, that has also been, been helpful. I know you've shared that music speaks to you and is particularly helpful for you. So I don't know if that, yeah, I don't know. I'd be curious if there are any artists or songs or poets that have helped you in your grief. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of music that's, that's helped me. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are songs that remind me of her, um, there's you know songs that she loved, which helped me connect with with her. Um, there's and there's songs which resonate with my story. You know, there's um, I have a whole playlist of songs um, for different parts of my journey. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to remember some of the songs that because I because I have a whole playlist. Um, 
of songs, um, which you know, which were which I made about my story, um, and I think um, there's a whole load of different artists that I could name, you know, um, but I think. Um, I mean, it's difficult to name one, <laughs> but I mean, yeah. you know, I, songs like I, I think, um, ironically, there's a song called "Daddy" by Coldplay, mm. um, and this is about yeah, and it's it feels like it's a song about grief and losing a parent. Now, obviously, it's about a father, but I could easily turn that into my mum. <laughs> Um, sure. like a conversation between me and my mother. Um, um, so I mean that that was one that made me cry. There's there's this song, there's this amazing song called "Her" by Anne Marie. Um, mm. and I listen to that, and I'm just like, you know, um, yeah, yeah. There's some songs which I feel like a conversation between me and her. And sometimes it just remind me of her. Paul Simon's Graceland album. Yeah. Um, that was her mm. favorite album. You know, it was, and it's one of my favorite albums. It was just, a, it was one we used to listen to together. And so mm. we played a song from that album at her funeral. It was a song on that album that made me cry. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and Les Miserables as well, um, because. Um, she loved that musical. We loved that musical. We went. It was the last musical we went to see with her before she wow. died. Yeah. Um, and uh, and she she loved France and and she spoke French and so it's just tied up with her a lot. So uh, whenever I listen to that music, um, it's quite powerful music in itself. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. but it's more emotive for me because it's like a connection with her. And, um, yeah, and, and actually in terms of poetry, my mother actually wrote a lot of poetry in her life. Wow. Um, after she had the first attack when I was young and lost her short-term memory, part of her therapy was writing poetry, and she left a whole load of poetry behind. Um, and um, there's this one poem called Let Not the Children Suffer, which is about me and my sister. Um, and it's quite, I, I get emotional quite think, thinking about it because, um, there's almost a naivety there in that, um, that, that she wanted us protected from the pain. Wow. Um, I mean, we were, I was, I was eight and my sister was four when she had her first attack. Um, so she wanted us to be protected from all of that. And of course we weren't. <laughs> right. Because um, the price of love is pain, you know, like. Yeah, you love so someone, the, you lose them. There's pain. Yeah, so that poetry always moves me as well. So, and it can be there can be songs just appear like and I just hear them and they'll just remind me of her, um, or I'll hear her speaking to me or something that um, could be random. But yeah, um, definitely. I mean, art is a big, and music especially is a big emotional connector for me and a, and a way that I process emotion. Um, and journal, that includes journaling as well. Yeah. That's been a big thing for me. I, you know, I, yeah, just hearing you talk, I, I realized like I, I had 
I had so conditioned myself to be um, emotionally strong and um, composed that, but but really it, it was like um, you know I the, the I needed to let the steam out right. It was a pressure cooker, but but I had conditioned myself to be composed, and so I almost had to create moments in which I could let off steam. You know, I could you know something that would unplug unplug the the emotion in some ways and so that's why I think you know I don't want to say I had to force myself to cry but I knew I needed to and I knew it was healthy and I had to kind of do something to kind of um get myself out of this rut of of numbness and of not feeling anything because like I said so many of my rituals had been numbing rituals um that that I knew okay I need to I need to find an outlet that will help me confront the emotion that I know is there, but that is beneath the surface. Um, I, I, yeah, you know, um, back when we used to have, um, you know, TVs back in like the nineties and like, if there was a station that wasn't getting any signal, it was that kind of pixel pattern, black and white, you know, (laughs) that's, that's how I, that's how my brain felt for like six months after Rachel died. It was like, I just wasn't getting a signal. You know what I mean? I just was just completely numbed out flat. And, and, and I just knew I, I needed something to help me reconnect with my own heart, with my own head, with my grief, with that anguish that I knew was there, but that was buried. And it's like, that's what that's what music and poetry did for me. It was like a shovel to unbury the grief that was there all along and, and provide an outlet for it. And yeah, it was, it was these kind of um, controlled moments where I said, okay, I'm going to give myself 30 minutes to be really upset, you know, and maybe that seems silly to some people, but for me it was really important. And that's what music and poetry, um, and prayer uh, did did for me, I think. Mm. Those things are really, really important. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, I love that. I mean, I, that, that's similar for me. Sometimes you just need to give yourself, like, some time and say, okay, I need to have a cry. Okay, yeah. I'm going to take myself off and do that and get that out of my system. And allow that to just uh, allow myself to feel that. Allow myself to be sad. Yeah. Uh, and because I need to do that, and that's a healthy thing to do sometimes. Um, and uh, yeah, and think about that person, and think about memories, and think about you know, and just just allow that stuff to come to the surface because that's that's how you heal. That's how that's how you. That's how you befriend your grief, I think, how you yeah. build a healthy relationship with the grief because grief isn't a problem that can be fixed. It's not something that's ever going to go away. It just, my experience is that it evolves and yeah. and changes and, and grows and you can always befriend it. Um, and for me, it has become connection. I have found a deep connection with my mother, hmm. uh, which is very real, and her consciousness which is very real and interacting with her moments that I've had, which have felt like she's been present tangibly. 
Um, yeah. But that only happened because I did the work of grief. Right. Yeah, that's right. You have I to love, go through the valley. <laughs> I love what you say about befriending grief. Cause I know for me, I initially felt like grief was like this really rotten roommate that had moved in and I hadn't chosen her. It's like she'd been assigned to me. Right. And she's a roommate that leaves a mess and doesn't pick up after herself and doesn't pay the rent, <laughs> you know, and I got to somehow learn to live with her. And, and, but then once I learned that like grief is actually has something to bring to my life has a, I don't, I don't want to call it a gift. Cause I'm, I'm not all about redemption language. Like I'm not all about like, look for the silver linings. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that there's this cosmic scale in which like someday all the good things that you learned as a result of your grief will outweigh all the bad that you experienced. I, I don't like to keep track in that way. I just think it's both, it's both awful and formative and it's just both things. Um, but, but I did feel like, okay, I need, like you said, I need to learn to, to bef- befriend grief in such a way that I can get everything out of it that, that God in my language of faith, you know, that God has for me. And, and there's, you, you have to kind of, I think, accept the fact that y- you, you have changed. I think when you lose someone as close to you as say your mother, James, or my sister, you, you're not only grieving the loss of them, but you're grieving the loss of yourself. Like you're no longer who you once were and you have to figure out how to say goodbye to the old you and in some ways to become accustomed to the new you, um, because grief changes you. some in some ways for the worse in some ways for the better. And so I think kind of grieving the loss maybe of my innocence or grieving the loss of kind of who I was before has been important. Grieving the the changes in family dynamics even has been important. Um but yeah, it changes you and you have this you have to find this new way of being in the world. And like you said, that take that's the grief work. That is the work of grief. Um and you have to give yourself to it wholeheartedly. Um, and I'm still, I'm still learning how to do that, you know? Yeah, I think we all are. <laughs> I think it's a, it's a lifelong process. Um, learning how to grieve well. Um, uh, as long as we're fully engaged with it, I think. Yeah. Um, then we're doing all right. We just have to keep going. Um, and especially right now, it's okay not to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well. And, you know, as much as we've talked about the importance of confronting your sadness, I do also want to say one little disclaimer in there, too, that, like, in seasons like we're in now where we're in this kind of marathon of grief work <laughs> between COVID-19 and plus everyone's own personal losses that they've experienced. I, I do believe that it's important to kind of give yourself a breather. Like I, I do think sometimes distraction or doing something just that you, that it's just fun and restful and mentally restful is okay. So I'm not, I'm not saying it's, all wrong to sometimes binge a Netflix TV series. Like I'm currently really enjoying the crown, for example. Um, but you know, I don't think that that's all wrong. I just think you have to, at some point, you have to, at some point 
go there to the hard places and create those outlets for your grief and confront it. Yeah, absolutely beautifully said. I, I agree with all of that. Um, this has been really great. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been amazing to talk about this with you. Um, and to just sit with you in, in, in the grief, in a sense, you know, it's, uh, it feels like that. And we need that. We all need that. Um, and I hope this has been helpful for people who are listening as well. So um, thank you for listening. Um, where can people connect with you online? Yeah. Um, well, I, I occasionally lurk on the Twitterverse um, under Amanda Held Opelt is you know, where people can find me on Twitter and Instagram and um, have some music out there um, under, yeah, the name Amanda Opelt. So um, have written some songs about grief and have put those out there to the world. So um, yeah, those are some of the spaces you can find me. But I love hearing from people about their journey of grief and Sibling loss in particular, I'm interested in talking to people about because I, I think people don't talk about that as much. Um, sometimes there's a lot of resources out there for losing a spouse or losing a child, but there's not too many out there for losing a sibling. And so I love to connect with people on that in particular. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Thank you for your work in, in this on this topic. I think it's important. Yeah, it is. I think I really believe it. I really believe that fundamentally that it is it's one of the most important topics that we can we can we can talk about and explore. Um and it's needed more. So thank you. And uh and thanks for listening everybody. <laughs>